Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 20th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, it's a girl, a very young, very old girl. A major paleoanthropological find was announced today, the discovery of the extensive remains of what is being called the Dakika baby. She was discovered in Ethiopia, not far from where her famous relative, the fossil known as Lucy, was found. Donald Johansson discovered Lucy more than three decades ago. He's now the director of the Institute of Human Origins and professor of human origins at Arizona State University. He joins us to talk about the new finding and what it means for our understanding of human evolution. We'll also hear some very interesting comments that John Hoffmeister made last week in a talk he gave. He's the president of the Shell Oil Company, but these particular comments might be some unexpected fuel for thought. And we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Donald Johansson on the big fossil find from Ethiopia. Dr. Johansson, thank you very much for talking to us today. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about this exciting new discovery from uh, Ethiopia. A major paleoanthropological find that's that's being announced today. Can you tell us exactly what it is and talk about why it's so exciting? Well, the discovery made by uh, the uh, Dikika Research Project under the direction of uh, wonderful Ethiopian scholar Zaresenai Alamseged. We uh, refer to him uh, usually as Zarai, as I will do so in this interview. Uh, the remarkable discovery that Zarai and his team have made in Ethiopia is of a 3.3 million year old partial skeleton of a immature individual, a baby virtually, uh, that died uh, at about age three. And what is so remarkable about it is that there is a virtually complete skull, and by that I mean uh, the, the brain case, the face, and the lower jaw or mandible is still in articulation with the face. There are numerous rib fragments. There are both collarbones, uh, both uh, shoulder blades. There are uh, a number of vertebrae, such as those from the neck, from the chest, and even a few from the very low down in the back in the lumbar region. There's a piece of arm. There's some hand bones and enough of the lower limb, uh, the thigh bone and tibia or shin bone, that shows us that this creature was uh, certainly upright walking. So. It's a remarkable discovery because of its completeness, because of its age, its geological age, 3.3 million years, and also the fact that it is such a young individual, or was such a young individual when it died. Why are juveniles so valuable to find? Well, one of the important uh, questions that we all ask ourselves uh, is whether or not the features, the anatomy of adult specimens that we traditionally use in uh, giving... um, a description or diagnosis to a new species. For example, this specimen belongs to a species already very well known from discoveries that I've made uh, in Hadar, Lucy, of course, being the most famous. But how do we know that this these specimens all belong to Australopithecus afarensis? And we usually see these features in adult specimens because those are the ones that preserve the best. And we want to know if some of those features, such as curved hand bones, for example, are actually genetically uh, driven, or are they part of uh, what happens through activity throughout the individual's life? Is it something that you acquire by uh, holding onto a branch? Does that curve the fingers, or is it something genetic? And here in this individual, as young as three years old, we see every single feature that clearly defines Australopithecus afarensis in a very young individual. So it means that these are genetically determined characteristics. 
So that makes this specimen uh, incredibly important from that point of view. But it's also important because there will be differences in the shape of the face, in proportions of the mandible, and so on, that will change throughout the growth of the individual. For instance, if we look at a baby chimp today, it looks much more like an adult than does an adult chimp, uh, much more like an adult human than does an adult chimpanzee. Right. So that the changes that occur that make chimps very distinct from us are part of the growth process. And uh, what Zarai and his group will be doing, obviously, is looking very closely at those changes that occur during growth and development, so what you, we call ontogenetic change. You get, you get two for one when you find a juvenile. You find out what characteristics are genetically, uh, I hate the word programmed, but you know what I mean, and which sure. ones are then, uh, are, you get some insights into what happens during the development of the individuals in that species as well. That's exactly correct. Can you tell me, people might not know that when, you, when you're out there fossil hunting, to find an almost complete or, or you know, half-complete skeleton is incredibly rare. Is that correct? Oh, it's uh, unbelievably rare. If I think back on my own career, I've worked in Ethiopia since 1970, and my discovery of uh, the now very well-known skeleton, uh, popularly called Lucy, uh, nothing like it has been found since. Uh, and that was found in 1974. So that it is uh, an extraordinarily challenging endeavor. Uh, the probability of finding something like this is very low. Uh, so, uh, of course, I tip my hat to uh, Zarai and his group for discovering this specimen, which, interestingly, in a geographic sense, is just across the river from where, where I found Lucy. In fact, uh, as the crow flies or I suppose in the African sense, as the vulture flies, right. it's about four, they're separated by only about four kilometers. So uh, they're very close to one another. Uh, Lucy was 3.2 million years old, so this is a, a little bit uh, older than the Lucy specimen by about 100,000 years. But uh, from the description which uh, Zarai has provided in this uh, very important nature paper, there's no question that Lucy and this new uh, baby from uh, the Dakika region, as it's called, uh, belong in the same species. There's a there's a uh, a term that gets used a lot: intermediate forms. And I, I hate this term because I think it's it's almost disrespectful to the individuals that you're talking about. Because when they were alive, they were not an intermediate form; they were whatever they were. Uh, do you do you have that same opinion, by the way, about that expression? Well, I think that uh, the term intermediate form uh, is better understood from uh, the perspective of time. Right. Uh, if we look, for example, we published an article, uh, Bill Kimball was lead author, a colleague of mine here at the Institute of Human Origins, an article in the Journal of Human Evolution uh, in June. And there we looked at uh, nearly a million years of time, from about 4 million to about 3 million. And there are two well-known species of Australopithecus, or ape man, as they're sometimes called. One of them is known as Australopithecus anamensis, about 4 million years, and one well-known one, Australopithecus afarensis. And when you look at features, you see that they change over time in a sort of a systematic way. And we interpret that as being a lineage uh, in a strict Darwinian sense. Darwin right. suggested that species evolve out of other species 
along a lineage over a slow changing process so that you could look at, at that million year time slice and see that some of the specimens are intermediate in their anatomy as opposed to ancestral or descendant or primitive in advanced. So I think if you have enough specimens over enough of a range of time, one can begin to talk about the intermediate nature of some anatomy. Uh, but you are certainly uh, absolutely right when you say these are not species or specimens that are going anywhere. They're not intermediate between anything at the time because they are fully adapted, fully in tune with the natural world around them. And it's only much later with the perspective of, of, a, of a time slice that we can actually uh, appreciate the trends, for example, evolutionary trends that might make some species more ancestral, others more derived, and some intermediate. With that in mind, can you talk just a little bit about where afarensis is as a form that we now, in retrospect, can think of as intermediate? It seems like you have a lower body that uh, is familiar for upright ambulation and an upper body that's still sort of climbing around a bit. I think this is uh, certainly one of the great contributions of the Dakika baby, and that is that uh, more clearly than ever, we've never had a complete shoulder blade or scapula, uh, and both of them are preserved. And what's remarkable about it is that when you look at the little cavity, it's called the glenoid cavity on the side that points outward, uh, it points directly outwards in, in modern humans, um, homo sapiens. But in chimps and gorillas, that little cavity points more upward, uh, more cranially, as we would say, because they were swinging around in the trees a lot and using their arms. Well, in the Dakika individual, you can see clearly that that little cavity is pointing much more upwards, and because of the breadth and the length of the shoulder blade itself, it looks more gorilla-like than anything we've ever seen. Uh, and the Dakika baby does substantiate the view that the evolution of hominids, like all animals, uh, was in fact a, a condition what, which we call mosaic evolution, that they didn't sort of magically turn in overnight from an ape to a human, that natural selection sort of targeted certain parts of the body, and it appears that the first major thing to change was uh, bipedal locomotion. But those other features that were left over from the days that the, our far distant ancestors were living in the trees are still seen in the skeleton, such as relatively long arms, curved hand bones, a gorilla-like uh, scapula, uh, a small brain, a projecting face, and so on. So we are looking at a creature in Afarensis, uh, Lucy's species and the species of the Dakika baby, uh, as uh, being intermediate between ape and human. So uh, that, that I think, is very important. The other part of the article by Zorai that's interesting is they do suggest that those features in the scapula tend to be correlated with climbing behaviors. Traditionally, I think many people, including myself, uh, when we first found Lucy, thought that she was strictly a terrestrial creature, walking bipedally on the ground and never traveling in the trees. It seems now that more and more evidence is suggesting that climbing behavior may have been part of their activity pattern, and they may have been climbing into the trees to gather fruit, 
or perhaps build sleeping nests at night. What's next here? Are there uh, are there other things percolating? I mean, it takes years, really, between the time that the discovery is made and the publications come out. Are there other things that we don't know about yet that are still coming out that you've heard about? Well, there certainly are. Uh, there are colleagues who have made discoveries at various places who are working on them. We're still waiting for announcements of things that have been found way back in uh, the early uh, uh, 1990s. Uh, and it does take a long time to process this information. I think that uh, Zarai's done a splendid job of pointing out the highlights of this individual, the highlights of this specimen. But uh, it will be some years before uh, a detailed monograph, as we call them, a, a, a book that's dedicated solely to the specimen appear. And by that time, I think we will have a tremendous insight uh, into the growth and development uh, of uh, Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis. Dr. Johansson, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. For a collection of Scientific American articles on the subject of human evolution, go to our digital archive, www.siamdigital.com, and check out the volume called Becoming Human. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, some have predicted future wars over water. Archaeological evidence now points to numerous conflicts over water supplies in the distant past. Story two, if you're easily angered, it looks like you have an increased risk of lower lung function later in life. Story three, the Boy Scouts of America now offer a merit badge in nuclear science. And story four, the first complete genome of a tree has been sequenced, and this poplar has more genes than you do. We'll be back with the answer, but first... John Hoffmeister is the president of the Shell Oil Company. He gave a speech on September 7th at Washington University's Wiedenbaum Center on the Economy, Government, and Public Policy in St. Louis. I saw some brief articles about the speech and called up the university, which sent over a DVD of the entire talk. There were a couple of passages I thought were particularly interesting coming from the president of an oil company. Hoffmeister made it very clear that Shell was in no way getting out of the oil and gas business, but he also addressed the benefits of alternative fuels, and then he said this. We believe at Shell that we have to change the hearts, the minds, the values, and the behaviors of Americans toward a culture of conservation, to use energy differently, and to use energy more efficiently in the world of tomorrow. Eight percent of the world's population today in this country uses 25 percent of the world's energy supply every day. That is not a sustainable formula for lifestyle and use of energy into the future when we know for a fact that the other 92% of the world wants their fair share of energy. And if you travel today to China, travel to India, travel to other parts of the world, you see increased use of energy in ways and means that we are accustomed to in our lifestyle. And you realize that we can't deny Chinese, Indians, Africans, Malaysians, other people from different parts of the world from also wanting their opportunity to use energy in different ways. And so the unsustainability of the 8 to 25 formula will only be satisfied in the current lifestyle by higher cost. And at some point, cost is too great for the social requirements of our communities 
and our cities. And as a consequence, people get frozen out. They can't afford energy. They can't pay the bill. They can't fill up the tank because it's too expensive. So a culture of conservation to us deals with hearts, minds, behaviors, beliefs. And it leads to different ways of managing energy in terms of how we design our homes, how our cars are designed, how our factories, offices, and lifestyles are designed. I don't mean to be critical, but this morning, coming down the elevator in the Hilton next to the ballpark, waiting for colleagues, you look at the fireplace, there's a gas fire, heating an air-conditioned lobby. <laughs> it looks great. It feels great. A little chill in your back and a little warmth on your front. But is that an efficient use of energy in the world of tomorrow? The answer is obvious. A culture of conservation is much more in our view, in Shell's view, than simply moving the thermostat one or two degrees, or driving slower, or driving less. It's much, much more than that. Those are, of course, available options to every one of us today. But it's not enough. We need different designs and different mindsets around the engineers and the technicians and the technologists that work on these things. And we need to move forwards as a society in a way that is different. At the end of his prepared remarks, Hofmeister took questions from the audience. Here is his response to the question, can you give us your thoughts on the science of greenhouse gases and that whole issue? For Shell, the debate's over on greenhouse gas emissions. We've, we, we, for two reasons. We believe the science is mature in terms of measuring greenhouse gas effects on the world as we live in it. And secondly, when most of the policymakers around the world have decided that greenhouse gas emissions are at a level of, that's not acceptable due to man-made uh, issues, who are we to say they're wrong? They run our governments, they run our countries, um, and, and we're a citizen. So we follow what our policymakers tell us to do. And so we think the debate's over. Let's instead get on with the solutions. Anyway, I thought you'd be interested in hearing those remarks. Thanks again to the folks at Washington University in St. Louis for supplying a copy of the speech. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, many examples of wars over water throughout history. Story two, easily angered, may have lower lung function later in life. Story three, the Boy Scouts offer a nuclear science merit badge. And story four, a poplar tree has more genes than a human. Time's up. Story four is true. The first complete genome of a tree was announced this week, and the poplar in question has about 45,000 genes compared with only some 30,000 for you. For more, listen to the September 18th Scientific American 60-Second Science podcast at siam.com slash podcast or at iTunes. Story three is true. The Boy Scouts do have a nuclear science merit badge. The journal Physics Today reports that the revised merit badge replaces the old atomic energy merit badge. And if you want one, be prepared to go through a 95-page booklet of requirements. Story two is true. A study in the journal Thorax followed 670 men taking part in aging research. Men who had high levels of hostility had consistently poorer lung function. Remember, breathe. 
All of which means that story one about numerous wars over water throughout human history is totally bogus. Because it now looks like the last war over water was fought between a couple of Sumerian city-states 4,500 years ago. Apparently, water is so important that countries, even those who may already technically be in a state of war, find ways to cooperate over H2O. For more, see the article titled, Water Wars Loom, But None in the Past 4,500 Years, at our website, www.siam.com. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. And check out the new daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, at our website and over at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 